Welcome to another episode in the Search for Racial Equity series, a global forum offering an in-depth study and dialogue of racial equity and justice. We amplify the most authentic and powerful voices of our time and the racial justice movement while using our global platform to create safe spaces for the most important and timely discussions. As the world continues to fight for racial justice, many of us wonder the same thing. How can we make a real, lasting difference? Meaningful change often begins with meaningful conversation. To contribute to that dialogue and our commitment to racial equity and inclusion, Google has launched a weekly series on our Talks at Google YouTube channel and here in podcast form that amplifies some of the most authentic and influential voices of our time and this global movement. The Search for Racial Equity series hosts authentic, open discussions that reckon with the structural and systemic racism Black people have experienced over generations. To find the video of this talk and all others from the series, please visit g.co slash talks at Google slash racial equity. This episode is with Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones, who sees her work as forcing us to confront our hypocrisy, forcing us to confront the truth that we would rather ignore. She holds nothing back as she discusses civil rights and racial injustice as a student of history. As power always does, power protects itself. Given this, will the current actions of policymakers and corporations cause transformative change, or will they just subvert and delay the real change necessary to reorder the hierarchy? Ms. Hannah Jones's parallel command of language and truth are awe-inspiring and force us to take a hard look at our assumptions and question the completeness of the history that we learned and how that has shaped our society today. She also talks about the 1619 Project, which aims to reframe the history of the United States by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of Black Americans at the very center of the United States' national narrative. Slavery is sometimes referred to as the country's original sin, but it's more than that. It's the country's very origin. In conversation with Googler Dr. Kamau Bob, here is Episode 2, Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 Project. My name is Kamal Bob. I am the global lead for diversity strategy and research at Google. I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the search for racial equity. Today I have the distinct honor of having a dialogue with Nicole Hannah-Jones. She is the Pulitzer Prize winning author and creator of the 1619 Project. The MacArthur Genius Foundation uh, Committee determined that she is in fact a genius and she is a truth teller. Nicole is also one of the most sought after opinion makers of the moment. And so we're really deeply honored to have you, Nicole. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's a real pleasure. So as I said, I know that uh, your time and attention is sought after as the, the country is in flux at the moment for a host of very serious reasons. But prior to getting into the dialogue, uh, it's, it's useful to know a little bit about you. Uh, in my uh, experience. I don't like just talking about myself just on cue. So let's do the following. Your Twitter handle, for example, is Ida B. Wells. And you're also the co-creator of the Ida B. Wells uh, Center for Investigative Journalism. So if you would say a little bit about who Ida B. Wells is and her spirit and how her spirit reflects you. Sure. Thank you for interviewing me today. Um, my Twitter handle is actually Ida Bay Wells, uh, not Ida B. Wells. Um, and of course, it's a Black Twitter nod to um, whom I consider to be the most badass investigative journalist this country has ever produced. Uh, I first came um, 
to know Ida B. Wells the way many people did. She was one of the few Black people you learned about during Black History Month in public school. And they said that she was a journalist, but um, never really taught us what her journalism was about. And uh, it wasn't until college that I read her autobiography and was just um, captivated that a woman born into slavery, uh, not even five feet tall, had the moxie and the courage to go into communities that had just lynched a black man or woman and start asking questions. And for those who don't know, uh, she was a journalist. She, she was really the person who put lynching on the global map in the United States. She was a co-founder of the NAACP. She was a suffragist. She was a civil rights leader. Um, she was a feminist. So you know, she hyphenated her name before that was in vogue for women. And uh, even after she had a baby, she she would take her child or children out on uh, the investigative trail with her. Um, the reason that I helped co-found the Ida B. Wells Society for Investigative Reporting, though, is that even though Ida B. Wells was doing investigative reporting right after the end of slavery, I, as a kid, didn't have really any examples of Black women investigative reporters. And when I decided that this was a career I wanted to pursue, uh, all of the examples I'd ever seen of people who did this work were white men. So when we founded this organization to help train and uh, grow the number of Black and other uh, journalists of colors who do investigative reporting, we named it after Ida B. Wells so that we could show that there has actually been a long tradition of Black people doing this reporting, of us innovating investigative reporting techniques, and that it's really critical. Um, lynchings were occurring just no white media were investigating them. And that's the role that black journalists still play is things are happening in our community that get communities that get largely ignored by mainstream journalism unless we uh, end up doing the reporting on those. So we want to um, ensure that there are many more Ida B. Wells and that we also understand that important legacy. Thank you for that. So in your in your own process, though, in, in pursuing investigative journalism, was there like an innate, a missing truth that you were after, that you felt that there, there was just something not there that you wanted to discover? Yeah, I first started writing. Uh, I mean, I, my journalism career began in high school. And it began, uh, I was bused into white schools starting in the second grade. I went to a majority white high school uh, and most of the black kids in my school were also bused from the other side of town as part of a desegregation program. And I went to my high school African-American studies teacher and complained to him about how our high school newspaper never wrote about kids like me, the black kids who were bused into the school and how we faced a lot of discrimination in that school. And being, you know, the great black educator that he was, he told me to either join the paper or shut up and don't come in his room complaining about it anymore. So um, me being an Aries, um, <laughs> if you challenge me to do something, I will always take you up on that challenge. So I joined my high school paper and um, started writing about kids like me. The first journalism award I ever won was for a column I did on all of the stereotypes that people had of our community, uh, the black community, um, the east side of my city. And I won uh, Iowa High School Press First Place Award. And that kind of put me on the trajectory to pursue journalism as a career was um, understanding that 
we have to write our own stories that if we only allow the narratives of our communities to be shaped by those outside of our communities, we'll never have an accurate portrayal of both our, our struggles and our triumphs. So um, that's really what made me want to become a journalist from a young age. And uh, I only ever wanted to be a journalist to write about Black people and, and racial inequality. I've written about lots of different things, but that those things were not why I became a journalist. One of the reasons that I was saying in the introduction that you're a truth teller, and I appreciate that about you, uh, is the singularity of your mission. It seems that the kinds of things that you write about have always been singularly focused. And that part of it, I think, is revealed in the trajectory of your work. So that said, help us out now with the things that you're typically asked to talk about. Uh, the 1619 Project, its origins, and ultimately that truth that's been missing from American history. If you could frame that up for us a little bit so that we can go from there. Sure. So the 1619 Project, uh, published actually almost a year ago, um, it published in August of last year. And in some ways, I've been thinking about the 1619 Project since I was in high school. That same class um, where Mr. Ray Dial told me to join the newspaper or shut up and don't complain anymore, was also the class where I came across the year 1619 for the first time. Um, when that class was over, I got this obsession with learning Black history. That class, I, I remember feeling really angry when I took that class because in that one semester, I learned more about Black Americans, uh, Africans, and our contributions to the world than I had learned in my entire K-12 education. And I became really angry because I thought about um, all the years where I felt really demeaned by our curriculum, where People would tell us we were inferior and I had no evidence or facts or history to push back on that notion. I mean, I, I knew it, it didn't feel true, but I had nothing, um, no facts to to argue. And, and I remember thinking all this time, you all knew this history existed and no one thought it was important for us to learn it. So, you know, high school is already a, a period of radicalization and taking that class, uh, being a black student, bus into a white school, uh, I just became obsessed to learn this history. I, I understood the power of that knowledge, even as a 16 or 17 year old uh, child. So when that class ended, I kept going back to that teacher and I tell him to give me another book. Um, we only got one semester of black studies, but I, I was not done with my black studies curriculum. So one of the books he put in my hand was a book called Before the Mayflower by Lerone Bennett. And, you know, page 35 or so, he mentions the year 1619. And it was like a lightning bolt. I was like, wait a minute, we've been here that long? We, the, the title of the book made sense to me then. I was like, wait, we've been here before the Mayflower? Um, the Mayflower lands in 1620. Every American child learns about the Mayflower. No American child learned about the White Lion, which came in 1619. So I've um, people who know me know that I've been obsessed with that date since high school. I've thought about that date since high school and what that meant and really the power of erasure. 1619 happened, but if we don't know it happened, it's like it didn't happen. And that erasure um, is so critical to our understanding of who we are. So fast forward to uh, really the end of 2018, I was finishing up my book leave. And I was thinking about, you know, what I was going to do when I came back to the times. And I was also thinking about that this 400th anniversary was approaching in that next year. And 
it was likely going to pass with no acknowledgement, no real commemoration, like so much about uh, the Black experience. It was just going to be invisible. And here I am at the New York Times, one of the biggest megaphones in the world. And I and I started to think, well, what, what can I do about that? And simply me writing an essay just felt way too small for the moment. 400 years of an institution that was so foundational to the United States, and yet uh, one that we have completely marginalized from our story, that we've treated as an asterisk. So I just started thinking that we should dedicate an entire issue of the New York Times Magazine to really assessing that legacy and to proving my kind of lifelong theory, which is that if you name anything in America, I can I can relate it back to slavery, that uh, slavery is so foundational to our political systems, to our cultural systems, to how we socialize, to our infrastructure, to our economy, that almost nothing has been left untouched, but it operates invisibly because we have been in such denial about the role of slavery and really have wanted to treat it, as I said, as an asterisk. So um, that's what I decided to do when I pitched the 1619 Project and the rest is kind of history. I appreciate the significance of the history that you've given and your relationship to it. And I, I, I think it's profound. But just to make sure for those guests who are listening that might not actually know what happened in 1619, if you could say that so that it's unmistakably uh, understood. Yes, of course. And thank you for reminding me that not everyone knows what the 1619 Project is. Um, so in August of 1619, that is when the first Africans were sold into the Virginia colonies. They arrived on a ship called the White Lion and they were sold against their will. So that is the introduction of what would become chattel slavery um, in British North America. So um why that matters, of course, is the English landed at Jamestown in 1607. And the fact that it only took 12 years before racialized slavery was introduced into the colonies, I think really speaks to how foundational slavery would be to the country that would develop. This is 150 years before we even decide we want to be a country of our own. Uh, this is before we have established any real institutions uh, on this land. And so one of the first institutions that gets established here is slavery. That matters. Um, and there's a reason we don't learn that date, because then one has to understand that if you think that um, the Pilgrim's Landing at Plymouth Rock is foundational to the American story, clearly um, the first Africans being sold on the white lion is more foundational to the American story. And that's why it's a date that most of us have never learned. So in this spirit, one of the things that struck me about what you just said is curricula as weapons, uh, in part because of the things that they omit. So in this case, the, the nature of the foundational elements of the American story that you allude to, it's not there. Uh, we just went through the Juneteenth moment it was clear from the national convulsion that many people had never heard of it. They had no idea what that was about. So given what you're trying to do, how do you see the integration of this kind of foundational knowledge into the American educational infrastructure so that it can be better understood so that we can then combat it? 
Sure. So I, I mean, I agree hundred percent with your theory. When, when you look at how we are taught American history in, in our K-12 education, um, it is taught to give us a shared sense of identity. It is taught, um, and every country does that, you, you teach a history that glorifies your national identity and is to create this uh, shared national memory. So in America, what what is the ideology that we want to put forth to our children about who we are. It is that we are a country founded on freedom, that we are the greatest, most liberatory democracy in the world, that we had to break off from the British empire so that we could be free and self-governed. Right. Well, black people are very, very inconvenient to that narrative. How do you talk about Thomas Jefferson and the declaration um, and how exceptional America is and then acknowledge that he had his own enslaved brother-in-law there with him, whom he owned, uh, to keep him comfortable as he's writing these words, that one-fifth of the population at our founding was in chattel slavery. They would know not a single liberty laid out in the Declaration or the Constitution. These are very complicated na uh, narratives that really pierce that idea that we are exceptional. So we're just really not taught that. Um, people are shocked when I say simple things like, 10 of the first 12 presidents were enslavers. That's shocking to people. This is not unearthing some uh, obscure American history. George Washington, the first president, Thomas Jefferson, the drafter of the Declaration of Independence, James Madison, who wrote the Constitution, had their wealth and their power based on enslaving uh, hundreds of human beings on forced labor camps. That is not the narrative of America that we want to have. So we obscure it. We downplay it. Um, we have had to pretend that slavery wasn't that bad, that it was just, you know, like being, you know, experiencing some level of prejudice, like uh, the brutality, the atrocity, the immorality. All of that has had to have been sectioned off in, you know, a couple pages or a separate chapter um, and not seen as foundational. But if, if you're arguing that these ideals of liberty were foundational, then you also have to argue that the very framework of American freedom was also defined by slavery and the deprival of absolute rights to a large percent of the population. And you also have to acknowledge, because the way we've kind of dealt with that dichotomy is this um, North-South intellectual divide. And that North-South intellectual divide says the true heart of America was the North and the North was free. And the South, they don't really count. They were just backwards and not really representative of America. Well, one, slavery was practiced in all 13 of the colonies. And uh, the biggest slave state at the turn of the 18th century was New York. It was not actually a Southern state. Uh, you also have to pretend that Southerners were not dominant in our national story at the beginning. George Washington is a Virginian. James Madison is a Virginian. Thomas Jefferson is a Virginian. So we, we do all of these crazy kind of psychological things because we cannot deal with slavery. And we are seeing in what's happening in our country right now, uh, the rotten fruit of that denial, which is um, a white officer's belief that he can kneel on a black man's neck with cameras recording him for eight minutes and 46 seconds, and there will be no consequence because we had to create a psychology that denies the full humanity of black people to actually deal with the fact that our founders uh, did appalling things uh, to human beings because they were black. So, in that, and what I appreciate, like I said before, is the singularity of that message. And I think for those who uh, 
understand. I didn't even a- answer your question about curriculum, did I? Sorry. You did. No, no, no. But it's, okay. it's, the, it's the disavowal of that kind of truth that makes a curricula that's organized around this liberatory story of the United States that makes it a weapon because it's not including the reality that you just mentioned. So the question that I have now is given that there, it seems like there are two uh, objectives. One is to just teach that. But then the, uh, to both people, because I, I mean, everybody growing up here has been left out of that yes. information. But the other is the mechanism for doing it. And I wonder what thoughts you have on the way that, because you're, you're not only char- challenging the American narrative, I mean, in the history of James Baldwin and others who have been doing this for a long time, there's also the actual mechanism about getting this into curricula, getting this into standardized tests, getting this into entrance exams, getting this into the basic expectations of what American education means. And what views do you have on that? Yeah. So um, before I get to that question, I I just want to comment, just add a little bit more to why this erasure uh, is so important and why it matters so much. So, of course, W.E.B. Du Bois called this the propaganda of history, that which historical facts we're taught and which ones we aren't and how we're taught them is often um, because we're engaging in, in a campaign of propaganda. And what that has meant is that white Americans, and I would say large numbers of black Americans too, and other Americans who are not black, they, they cannot really process the country that we live in. They, they cannot really understand why we have so much inequality, why Black Americans are on the bottom of every indicator of well-being, why Black Americans struggle so much, because in their heads, slavery was not that big of a deal. It was a long time ago. Um, and of course, we get our freedom in 1865, and then you know it's like we blink and it's 1963, and nothing happens in that 100 years in between. So when you don't have that understanding, then you have this kind of knee-jerk response to programs that are trying to help deal with that legacy. And so, you know, so many Americans don't support something like racial affirmative action. They don't support reparations. They don't support race-specific programs. And I feel like a big part of the lack of support is a lack of understanding of the history of how we got here. And that is also why... um, People have seen the 1619 Project, some people, as so dangerous because it it is really troubling that narrative and will force if people, if you read the 1619 Project and accept our arguments, you cannot accept the society that we have. You cannot morally accept the society that we have. And um, the biggest fight and pushback and campaign against the 1619 Project came when it was understood that schools all over the country were adopting 1619 as curriculum. When it was just a newspaper story, people didn't care that much. Um, But when it became clear, so we partnered with the Pulitzer Center, and the Pulitzer Center has a long track record of turning journalism into curriculum, into free curriculum that high schools can download. And the 1619 Project, uh, within a month, became the most downloaded project of the year and is now one of the most downloaded uh, curriculum curricula that they've uh, implemented. We know it's being taught in every state in the country by at least uh, one school. And some major school districts like Chicago Public Schools, the third largest school district in the country, has made it mandatory curriculum. That is when we started to see the most kind of vociferous pushback against the project was this idea that young children will be growing up with a very different understanding of America than what was forced onto us. And I think that that is liberatory. 
But for those who need to protect this idea of American exceptionalism, um, this light on the hill nonsense that um, really didn't didn't ever reflect all of the black and brown folks in the shadows and trampled uh, underneath so somebody could hold that damn light up on the hill, um, that, that there is a sense that they will lose something if this truth is revealed. I believe if your foundation is strong, then the truth can't do anything to to hurt your foundation. But the 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 ability to reshape uh, for young people their understanding of their country, their understanding of why things are like they are. For those who haven't read the sixteen nineteen project, it's really not a history. It is about the ongoing legacy of slavery, and it uses history to explain uh, modern America. And I think that's what people find so dangerous is we are saying, look around your country right now and all of these things that you think have nothing to do with our decision to engage in human bondage actually do. Um, that is the power. It gives a uh, true understanding. I say it's like taking the red pill in the matrix. Suddenly, if you read the whole project, you see all of the code um, that was written, that has created the, the vastly unequal society that we have today. And if you're white in this country, then you have to understand that whether you personally are racist or not, whether you personally engage in racist behavior or not, you are the beneficiary of a 350 year system of white supremacy and racial hierarchy. And you don't have to do a single racist thing to benefit from that system every day. Uh, and I think that is what people have really feared is, is that um, revealing of what our country truly is and also the centering of Black people as the true founding fathers. Some folks didn't like that either. <laughs> well, I have to say that in the beginning when I was saying to you that it was a real honor to have this conversation, it wasn't platitudes. It was in part because I knew uh, how influential this work that you've done has become. I want to ask about that infrastructure. The other part of the body of work that you've done has to do with the educational platforms themselves and segregation of schools and so on. Given the, the degree of segregation, I'm, I want to just kind of throw this whole thing at you and just let you respond. Um, but mm -hmm. given the degree of segregation that there, that there is currently in uh, U.S. public education, well, education period, but certainly in public education, uh, the challenge of having uh, cross-cutting effective curricula that's that's equally yoked in both sets of separate systems, it seems overwhelming to me, uh, given the, the depths of what the segregation implies. So given that, how do you view the relationship between the actual educational system and the work that you're trying to do? Uh, I, I think they're clearly linked, um, though I don't think the biggest problem when it comes to curricula is segregation. The biggest problem is that curricula is very politicized in general, and it is often uh, state boards of education that are determining what can be taught, what are the what are the standards, what type of textbooks. Um, they actually play a role in the writing of textbooks. So we know, for instance, in Texas, where they felt that learning ethnic studies was uh, too demeaning to America and the story of America, uh, where they really wanted to downplay slavery and so wanted to change the language. They wanted to call enslaved people workers, that sort of thing. Um, it, it is that, you know, what's been fascinating. So I, I've studied history. I have a 
I majored in history and undergrad have studied history a long time. And I've always known that history has never been about just the facts. There's never been one version. But most Americans actually have no idea how historiography works. And so they tend to think that there's just one truth. And the history they got in school was the truth and anything else is not. And so they don't understand to the degree to which these histories are manipulated, how um, certain facts are, are never included or how we interpret facts. For instance, was the Civil War about slavery or was it about states' rights? Well, we can all look at the same facts and depending on your ideological perspective, argue two different things. Um, and there's a truth in there, but you won't necessarily get it. So I, I don't think a lot of people have understood how politicized history curriculum in particular is in K-12. And one of the big pushbacks against the 1619 Project, which, by the way, is voluntary, free curriculum, it's, it's not... Um, it's not surplanting the traditional history in school, and it can't because this is history um, centered in slavery. And there's lots of other histories. For instance, there should be an indigenous, um, six, not, it wouldn't be a 1619 project, but a, a project like that for indigenous people. So there's lots of different ways that you can teach this history, but there's not one way to teach the history. So when people mm -hmm. are called the 1619 Project revisionist history, well, if you're a historian, you know all history is revision or else historians would have nothing to do, right? right? If everything has that is to know is already known and if we can get no new understanding, like historians don't just sit around and read other people's work. They, they uh, try to uncover more original source periods. They bring new interpretations. Like that is the, the nature of, of uh, history is to be revisionist. But that gets used as a derogatory term when black people do it, for one. Um, and when that um, revisions are no longer adhering to the narrative that we have all been taught and wanted to teach. So segregation is a problem in and of itself, mainly of uh, resources, but the problem of uh, curriculum is a national problem. We, we don't have a standard way of teaching this history. I don't know that we should I, um, have one standard of teaching it because I think it would be impossible to have one standard that does everything that it needs to do, but we certainly should have a more standardized understanding that in Texas, you can't say that enslaved people were just workers and uh, in Iowa, you say something completely different. I, I, I wish that there was a way to have more honest uh, history being taught. Well, now that you've gone down, <clears throat> excuse me, gone down that road of, of history itself, the, it seems to me like there's a conflation between history and heritage. So what's what's your, your view on those two things? So taking the flag issue aside, and I'll, I'll come back to that. Yes, our history is our heritage. We inherit our history. And, um, you know, the Declaration of Independence is part of our heritage. It is part of... Um, kind of our, our national identity. And for many white Southerners, the Confederate flag is as well. Here's the problem. Uh, you want to fly a Confederate flag in your house? By all means, do whatever the hell you want to. But in public spaces, you don't have a right to that heritage in public spaces. Because actually, when it comes to the Confederate flag, it's the heritage of a traitorous uh, would-be nation that took up arms against the United States. Uh, we wouldn't fly um, Al-Qaeda's flag in the United States, so why would we fly the Confederate flag? The other thing, though, that I think is more important in that conversation is the way that that idea that the Confederate flag is uh, Southern heritage erases the entire Black population of the South. 
Half of Black Americans live in the South. At the time of the Confederacy, 98% of Black Americans lived in the South. And that flag surely was not their heritage. And they surely were not fighting to preserve the heritage of that Confederacy. And in a place like Mississippi, where um, nearly 40% of the population is Black, it is the most heavily Black uh, city or state in the country. Black people are taxpayers. Black people are voters. Black people are citizens of that state. And to force them to go into public offices with the flag of the people who fought to enslave them, uh, it's immoral. And so we have to stop allowing white Southerners to lay claim to the Southern identity and erase and ignore the millions of Black people who live in the South and the millions of Black people whose only heritage in this country that they can trace is to the South. And that is why like that language and erasure that we're talking about is so critical. Now that might be white Southern heritage, but don't don't, um, make the white silent because Black people have been fighting against that flag for decades and they've been fighting against the Confederate flag for decades. And the last thing about that, and I know you know this, is heritage and history can be the same, but they're also not the same. There's a fact. So when white people in the South say, I don't see it as a racist flag, it's just about Southern heritage. It's not really relevant how you see it. There is a historical record and we know you can look at the succession documents of the Confederacy and they made it very clear. They were wanting to leave the United States over slavery. They believed in white supremacy. Um, It was not a euphemism back then. They literally said, we believe in white supremacy. Um, so you can feel what you want, but the facts are the facts. And um, I think as all of us need to be much more clear with our language and much more specific in the arguments that we're allowing. Do you think that the it's, what part of the current moment do you think has been, uh, has catalyzed their ability to, uh, to make that case? Like Mississippi, all of a sudden. Yeah. Like, you know, the arguments about it have been around, as you said, for generations. And then all of a sudden they're doing it. And and beyond that, I'm going to go into what you think about this particular sector that we're in. I feel very cynical about what's happening right now. Um, Anyone, if you study history, um, you know that these social movements do not create change that quickly that they are often uh, decades of fighting to see uh, any type of substantial change. And my fear is that um, when, you know, these public officials, when these corporations started seeing how sustained these protests were, how uh, widespread they were, that they were occurring in all 50 states, um, they began to get worried. And as power always does, power protects itself. And so I think there became a sense of what superficial things can we do um, to take the the glare off of the deep inequities that are actually going to cause for some serious transformation and reordering of a hierarchy. Um, That's what I think we're seeing. And while these symbolic changes are important, clearly, uh, or people wouldn't hold so fast to their symbols and they wouldn't have fought so hard to keep their symbols, um, I worry that then everyone's going to say, well, this is enough. We gave you Juneteenth. We painted Black Lives Matter on the street. And we took down, you know, this uh, monument of Robert E. Lee in a majority black city that was being paid for by black taxpayers. Um, so I, I don't know that it's 
that NASCAR, after however the hell long NASCAR has been in existence, suddenly realized that allowing people to fly the Confederate flag was against their values. Do I believe that? I do not. Um, I think it was uh, these more superficial reactions um, in hopes of subverting the harder and more uh, challenging and transformative change. So we'll see. But, you know, what what legislation have we seen to end police violence getting passed through? What laws have been changed around those issues? What what who's having conversations about uh, fundamentally changing economic inequality, school segregation, housing segregation, all of these things that actually really impact Black lives? We're not seeing it yet, and even uh, the media has largely moved on. I mean. Uh, turn your TVs on now and, and see how much time they spend on the protests. They're still happening, but we're not covering them. So let me ask you to speculate, because that that is a concern of mine as well. But the fundamental question that you raise is what causes a country to come to terms with cultural contrition? I mean, we have to get to the root of this thing. And if this kind of moment is not it, uh, I'm, I'm you're the historian, but I'm thinking about places like Germany and Japan, I mean, they were destroyed in order for them to really come to terms with what they had done. Yeah. What, what do you think is, is our moment? If, if the American exceptionalism idea is one that we hold fast to, then it seems like we should be able to interrogate ourselves and be better. But I get the impression that you don't think so. So help me, help me frame what you think is, is really necessary to move us forward. I mean, the true American exceptionalism is we've been exceptional in our hypocrisy. So I, I don't know that we're going to rise to the occasion of the exceptionalism. Um, with that said, this moment, at least it did feel different. Um, we'll see if it continues to feel that way. But I also think, you know, what you what you said is true, that the true moments of transformation in this country, much like Germany, Japan, occurred at revolutionary periods when we were on the brink of destruction, the Civil War. Um, that's the deadliest war in the history of the United States. And we nearly tore our entire country apart to purge the institution of slavery. The Civil Rights Movement was a decades-long sustained battle where Black people were getting killed weekly um, for decades, trying to fight for basic civil rights. And it wasn't, you know, it was a culmination of um, the uh, Vietnam War becoming kind of a, a global embarrassment and uh, us being out in the world saying that we're killing all these brown people for democracy. And at the same time, there's images of us violently suppressing democracy on Black citizens here that led to the transformative change. What, with that said, we are, I think, in one of those um, periods where we it does feel like we're on the brink of destruction, right? We've we followed the first black president um, by electing an uh, openly racist white nationalist to the White House. Um, millions of Americans are testing positive in the pandemic. We have no leadership to control that pandemic. We have the highest unemployment rates since the Great uh, Depression. Um, People are dying 130,000 so far, and we're only at the beginning of this pandemic. So we are in one of those ruptures right now. Um, and on top of that, people are taking to the streets to protest, um, to, to make Black Lives Matter. So I think that's where you see the potential existing because we are, we are, we are at a place where it feels like our country is, is pulling apart at the seams and it is our inability to get over 
this death pact with white supremacy that we've had. There's no way the man who's in office should be in office. There's no way that the man who's in office should um, be able to do the things that he's doing and yet, yet he has. So if there is the potential for that change, it's now. Um, but I just know enough about history to know that that might not be enough. There's a part of what you, the, 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 the elements of your writing and work that I followed, the part that I really appreciate, and you've written about it explicitly, which is about the, the lessons to America that Black people have offered. Yes. By virtue of our having to be kind of continually triumphant and hopeful. And we are the ones who have basically forced the country to live up to the extent that it has to its best ideals and its best principles. So given that theme that you, I think, beautifully articulate, how do you see that manifesting itself now? Uh, it's it's in Black people who are in the middle of a pandemic that is killing us at the highest rates of all people uh, taking to the streets to fight for democracy, taking to the streets uh, by the hundreds of thousands uh, and forcing our uh, brown and white and Asian brothers and sisters with us into the streets to say that in a democracy, you should not be able to be murdered on national TV by an agent of the state and that agent of the state faces no repercussions, that at the very least, in a country that thinks that it is the civilizing and freedom enforcing force of the world, um, the marginalized caste should not be murdered without consequence. So we are still playing that role. We are literally the ones dying who, who can least afford to be exposed uh, in public spaces and yet have felt that we have had to take to the streets en masse um, for weeks and weeks on end and forcing our country to continue to acknowledge the way that we fail um, at this idea of democracy. Because if you don't not protect the rights of your most marginalized citizens, then you protect the rights of no one. And I, I, I think for a lot of white Americans, when they saw that police will push down a man, a white man on his cane and walk over him and then quit their jobs when they're forced um, to show any kind of attrition, contrition for that, that they will uh, beat white women who are marching peacefully in the street. When white people saw that, then they understood um, why allowing this type of brutality against your least citizens actually takes away your freedom as well. Um, so black people have always had to play this role. We've played this role since before the Revolutionary War um, because we have been the people who were denied citizenship in our own country and have, have not been able to take for granted the ideals of the revolution um, because we never had, we were never allowed to live those ideals. We've had to fight for them. Uh, it's not that we are superior, but it, what it means is we have been in a position where we have never been allowed to take our freedoms for granted. The way where if you are white in this country, you just expect that the country is going to work in your favor, that your rights will be protected. We don't have that expectation. And that means we have been this nation's greatest freedom fighters. And we fought for the rights of all marginalized people. Um, it was not lost on me that during the um, middle of these protests, these Black Lives Matter protests, the Supreme Court rules that you cannot discriminate against gay people in employment. And they rule using the 1964 Civil Rights Act 
that black people died for to get past. Um, Cause that has always been our role. We've never fought just for our own rights. We've always fought for the expansion of rights for all Americans. Um, and that's why I argue that we're actually the per perfectors of this democracy. And it would just be nice if so much of the time we didn't have to stand alone. And it would be nice if our uh, white brothers and sisters would actually fight for us the way that we have fought for them. I have gotten to the point in my career, and it's largely because so much of my work about inequality uh, has nothing to do with Trump or Trump supporters or red state voters. It has to do with white liberals white progressives who say they believe in equality, except when it comes to the neighborhood they live in or the kids they send or school they send their kids to. And then they don't really believe in it. They, they believe in equality in the abstract. Um, the most segregated communities and schools in this country are all in very blue states and very blue cities, uh, New York, Chicago, you know, Philadelphia, go down the list. Um, and so at this point in my career, I don't even want people to ask me what white people need to do to fix what white people created. Um, no one asked us how to create segregation. No one asked us how to create inequality. They didn't consult with us about how do we create this architecture and this racial hierarchy. So you don't need to consult with us about how to undo it. Um, white people can figure out, you know, just about anything that they want to, but there's this forced um, fake helplessness when it comes to race and racial inequality, uh, as if we're the, the race whisperers, we're not. We didn't create these systems. So so let me let me refer back to one of the issues that you just raised, that some of the most segregated public school systems in the country are in the most progressive locations. So yeah. you alluded to liberal, progressive uh, white people and what their, the distinction between theory and practice of what integration means. So if we could just take a little bit of a turn. Some time ago, you wrote about the Normandy School District in Missouri, and you talked about the, the thing that was most uh, untested that seemed to be the most likely predictor of collective academic success was integration, and we just haven't done that. Yes. And so here, what I'm, what I'm interested in ultimately is your thoughts on the relationship between this kind of cohesive movement to a better understanding of what America is and the, the critical importance that education plays and the resistance to the integration that you just alluded to. Sure, so, I mean, I'm sure everyone watching this knows about the racial achievement gap. Uh, they know about all of these efforts to reform and um, erase that achievement gap, but the research is very clear. There, there's only ever been one thing in this country that has worked on scale to close the racial achievement gap and that's school integration. And it's clear why that is. Um, there's nothing about white kids that makes black kids smart if they sit next to them. But in a country that was built on racial caste, in a country where it was illegal for black people to learn to read at one point, um, where um, black people didn't even have high schools when white people had high schools, that if black kids aren't in the classroom with white kids, we've never shown in a single place that they get the same resources as white kids do. And integration works because it simply gets black kids the resources we guarantee that white children will have. And that is the one thing that we don't want to do. Um, Wait, I if, have, if I can interrupt you, just re restate that. Just what? 
the restate the reason that integration works for black students is the following the reason that that the reason that integration works for black kids is the only way that black kids have ever gotten the resources that white kids get is to sit in the classrooms that white kids sit in, period. Uh, to this day, uh, heavily black and brown schools get $28 billion less resources than white schools. That's just a fact. And, and I have given speeches all over the country in every community that I'm in. Uh, I say, show me the community in America where the heavily black school has the same resources as the heavily white school. I, I dare people to disprove me in a single place in this country. And it doesn't matter if I'm in the South, the West, the East, uh, the North, if I'm in a rural area, suburban or urban area, the fact is the more black kids in the school, the less resources that school has. We've never been able to uh, break up that caste system. So integration works. Uh, it also works just because I, I, you know, I don't really care about private schools. I don't believe in private schools. I believe that public schools are our most democratic and democratizing institutions. And um, I believe we should invest in each other and invest in each other's kids. So when I look at public schools and I ask people all the time, you know, wh where are your actual values? Because it is easy to say, I, I believe in equality but just not for my kid. When it comes to my kid, I need every advantage. You can't have both of those things. And I have documented this um, again and again, very well-meaning white people. They have Black Lives Matter signs in their yards. Um, but when you ask them where they send their kids to school, they're not sending their kids to school uh, with the children of the people they say they're marching for. And if you can't do that, then you don't actually believe that Black Lives Matter because you're not actually believing that the youngest Black Lives Matter. So if we can't have integrated schools, we'll never actually have uh, any semblance of equality in our democracy. And um, I don't expect that we will because we know. We know that the schools we put Black kids in are not up to par. You know, I'll hear parents say, well, it's not about the kids, it's the resources. Okay, so whose kids are deserving of going to those schools then? And, and how do we change a system where white kids draw resources and black kids don't if you don't use that power that you have to draw those resources to that school? And I also don't ever believe that it's just about resources either. I mean, it, it's clear um, white families don't want, in general, their kids in a school with more than 20% Black kids. That's what the research shows. And when it gets more than that, um, they start to believe that the school is in decline, whether the data actually shows that or not. So let me do this. I, I think that what you're laying out is, is the street level parameters of what we have to do going forward. So a last thought here is, in response to all of this, there's been a, a flood of money coming to black institutions, uh, technical uh, tablets and things of that sort. But there's also the basic presumption that we can use technology in some ways to facilitate learning, to provide equitable infrastructure for students and their capacities to learn. We can also affect curricula because we can spread these things in, in very fast and uh, robust ways. Give a response to the utility of that assumption uh, based on what you just said. 
Yeah, I have so many thoughts on this. We're going to have to talk for like another two hours. Um, so let me let me first say that clearly technology is critical for all of our kids. And technology has the ability to enhance education for our kids in ways that we didn't have the benefit of. Or I don't know how, how old you are, but <laughs> we didn't really have the benefit of that when I was in school. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I would never discount the role of technology. But when I hear uh, big tech companies or any philanthropical organizations who say that they're going to solve educational inequality with tech, that's just bullshit. And it's really trying to get uh, equality on the cheap. And I'm going to give you a very clear example. So Harvard University just announced that they are going to be all online for the fall. And they are facing a revolt. Students are saying, why should we have to pay full tuition for online learning? We go to Harvard because we want to sit in a classroom with other students and be taught by a great educator in person. That's what we know in this country to be the most valuable asset of education. It is not a computer screen. It is not a tablet. It is not a Google Chromebook. Um, so when we were doing our talk before this, and I told you, when I hear that, what I say is, look at the, the wealthy private schools that we hold up as a model and ask, how are they delivering instruction for their kids? What are those parents paying $50,000 a year for to go to Dalton? And I don't even know, maybe more than $50,000. Um, it's not for technology. So the same thing that uh, wealthy people want for their kids is what our kids need. More than a Chromebook, our kids in segregated high poverty schools need a quality teacher. They need quality curriculum. They need someone who can stand in front of them and deliver curriculum and expand learning and open their minds. And if the Chromebook is a tool of that, that's great. But if you have that Chromebook or not, they don't actually need it. They need quality instruction. I think that, um, you know, places like Google uh, and the tech industry, they're trying to offer solutions in the way that they work, but they're not really understanding that the solutions are much more simple than that. So imagine if a place like Google used its efforts to try to get into the lobbying campaign for school segregation, school integration. If a place like Google tried to actually use its, its, its heft to push the message out that the best thing for our kids are highly funded public schools, well-resourced schools, and putting uh, the most resources into the schools that need it. How about into uh, advocating for broadband as a universal right, right? Because you can give this kid this Chromebook and then he goes home and he has no internet service because black people have the highest rates of lack of internet at home of all racial groups. Uh, and Latinos would be second. So, you know, I have seen, I spent the um, year before last, a year in Detroit public schools, which is, Detroit is the poorest major city in the country. It's the blackest major city in the country. It has the lowest performing school district in the country. And I was in the poorest school in the poorest school district in the country. And they had Chromebooks for days. And those Chromebooks sat locked up in a cage somewhere because no one had taught the teachers how to use them. Uh, the kids couldn't take them home because they didn't have internet at home. Chromebooks were not gonna save those kids. We have to think much, much bigger. Um, and we have to think much, much more simple because I doubt that there's anybody 
an executive at Google who wants their kid to do online learning for eight hours a day and thinks that's a quality education. You don't. Um, these are tools that enhance education. They can't replace it. Uh, and the last thing I'll say on that is I also think it's really critical in our language to talk specifically about Black people. And you look at a place like Google and the diversity numbers don't look so bad if you don't disaggregate by race. But when you look at Black people who are the people upon which the system of racial caste was built, uh, the people who uh, are the most segregated, whose children are in the most disadvantaged schools, um, they are vastly underrepresented at a place like Google. So it's great that uh, you want to give some scholarships to some kids at Howard, but that is extremely superficial because most Black kids are never even going to get a chance to go to Howard because they're not even graduating from a school that prepares them to go to college. So I think that um, if a place like Google with the power that it has, with the resources that it has is serious, you're going to have to think much, much deeper than giving out some Chromebooks and giving some scholarships to a few uh, kids whose futures are already very bright because they're already in college. Nicole, I think your gift to the country is your ability to be precise with the truth. And I think in this instance, that has been really informative and in ultimately, Thank you. what is this search for racial equity? I want to have you close by saying what you think our your personal charge is now uh, in the moment that we're in, in, in the next moment ahead. Uh, my personal charge is to try to get H.R. 40 passed. H.R. 40 is the uh, reparations bill in Congress. It's to put together a committee to uh, talk about how reparations would occur. Um, the piece that I just published in the New York Times Magazine, What is Old, really lays out how there's almost nothing Black people can do on our own to close the racial wealth gap that was created uh, through 350 years of legal discrimination. So if folks want, uh, I will give this one advice to our allies, um, call your congressperson and tell them to get that bill out of committee. And let's actually work as a country to address um, the, the gaping economic inequality that uh, majority of Black people experience. You know, most Black people will never be brutalized or killed by the police, um, but nearly every Black American in this country struggles from lack of wealth. You've offered a perfect summary here, taking us through the journey into the truth. Nicole Hannah-Jones, thank you very much for participating in this episode of The Search for Racial Equity. Thank you for the conversation. Hopefully one day we'll find it. Uh, <laughs> I'm Melanie Parker. Thank you for joining us for the search for racial equity. Let us march on till victory is won.